The immediate context of the parable that Jesus tells in our gospel lesson is really quite simple. He's relating by parable the history of Israel and explaining how the message of the prophets has always been rejected. Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to a marriage feast. There is no better kind of feast. There is no happier occasion or better reason to feast. And this is the marriage feast of the king's son. So there is no greater invitation to any greater celebration. The kingdom of heaven is God's gracious reign over his people. And there is nothing better than his kingdom of grace here on earth. And we are invited. God rules with grace by proclaiming the gospel. We're invited to hear it. The kingdom of God, or as Matthew calls it, the kingdom of heaven, is the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments until the gospel needs no longer to be preached. And the kingdom of God is here. That which is already here is also always coming. The kingdom of God is coming. We pray that it continue to come every day when we pray the Lord's Prayer Thy kingdom come. The gospel tells a story. In the Old Testament, it was a story of what would come. Today, in the New Testament, it is a story of what has already come and what final things we still wait for. It is the same story, the same gospel message that saved 6,000 years ago is the gospel message that saves today. It is the message of Christ, who as the God-man serves for all people of all places and times as the one mediator between God and man. With this necessary union of God and man in mind, it is for good reason that Jesus likens the kingdom or reign of God to a wedding feast. God promised Abraham that in his seed all nations of the earth would be blessed. By promising that it would be Abraham's seed, the Lord was promising that the coming one, the Savior, would be a truly flesh and blood man of his own lineage, a human being who could take his place under the law and who could be expected among a certain people and at a certain time. By promising that all nations would be blessed by this coming one Savior, and that he would save all people, and that all who believed in him would be declared righteous in the sight of God, the Lord was promising that the coming one Savior would be true God. God of God, the only begotten of the Father, whose life and death would have such value that it could atone for the whole world's sin. The Lord was promising the personal union of God and man in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. This was a marriage, so to speak, between the divine and human natures. It was a marriage between heaven and earth. It is expressed poetically in Psalm 85. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth 
and righteousness shall look down from heaven. We call it the Incarnation, the long-awaited becoming flesh of God, which is what Incarnation means. We first, what this was first announced to shepherds by angels with words that echo the same psalm. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. So says God about marriage. God has joined our flesh and blood and made our human nature his very own in order to honor it and serve it and save it. So for the rest of eternity, not just human history, but eternity, the Son of God is true man. Not as eternally humbled, but he has exalted our human nature. He is one with our flesh and blood. There is no God other than the God who is eternally wed to what we are. And he will never abuse or neglect or abandon what he has embraced as his own. He is faithful. This is the marriage feast that God taught his people to long for since the beginning of promises. It is a great mystery. We cannot understand it. We can only believe it and adore it and thank God for it. In the fullness of time, he who planned the wedding was determined to have the wedding. And behold, all things were ready. Come to the wedding, he said. My son is finally tying the knot, so to speak. My son is joining your humanity like I promised he would. Rejoice and come. All you who have been invited, now come. But God's chosen people who were separated from the nations for this very purpose were not willing to come. They made light, they made excuses, and they abused the servants who brought them word. In describing such an appalling situation, Jesus is teaching how the message of the gospel was treated by God's own people, Israel, throughout the ages. It is a narrative story version of what Jesus cried out in the very next chapter of Matthew. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are sons of those who murdered the prophets. But see the patience of God. He sends servants to announce the marriage. And then once they ignore him, he sends servants to impress the urgency of the happy occasion that they ungratefully ignored. And then he sends more servants to warn them of their folly and refusing. And these hopeful servants are treated shamefully and even killed. Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. And we know the story well. But the occasion was too wonderful for God to call off. The occasion of the marriage of his eternal son to our fallen human nature was simply far too important. When his own people rejected him, he caused the gospel to be preached to the Gentiles. As we just heard from Isaiah, surely you shall call a nation you do not know. And nations who do not know you shall run to you. The glory of God's people Israel tabernacled among them. But their rejection of him, their, they fulfilled what was prophesied of him by rejecting him, by rejecting him. And so he became the light that lightens the Gentiles.
This also is a mystery. Isaiah prophesies of this broadening of the gospel's scope from just inviting the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to becoming the universal invitation to all nations whom God promised would be blessed in Abraham's seed. He writes, as we just heard again, Ho, which means come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. It is from these words, listen carefully to me, incline your ear, hear, and your soul shall live, that Jesus got his oft-repeated words of invitation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Because there is no qualification that you be of the lineage of Abraham. You must only be a man, a human. You need only share the nature of God who became a man for you. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You must only be a sinful man. You must only be thirsty and hungry and poor and in need of food and drink for free. You must merely be unworthy. Our Lord's parable today is a simple story that's easy to understand in hindsight. Jesus was describing not only Israel's past history, but also what was still to come. What did the king do to those who rejected the invitation to rejoice in his son's wedding? Well, being furious, he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. And this was fulfilled 40 years after Jesus told this parable, when the Roman general, soon to be emperor Titus, obliterated the city of Jerusalem, tore down the temple forever. And the word used here for destroy, as in destroy those murderers, is the same word for lost. The lost sheep is a sheep in the process of being destroyed. So the king let those murderers be lost. He cast them off for their unbelief and delivered them to their own darkness, eternally lost and unfriended. But Christ did not come to destroy, he came to save not to lose, but to find. He is the friend of sinners. So the king commanded his servants to continue inviting. The wedding is ready. My son is still getting married. The word is already made flesh. This cannot be canceled. It's already done. All is prepared. So go into the highways and invite all whom you find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. By this, Jesus prophesied the coming of the kingdom of God to all nations. That is, that the gospel would be preached to the ends of the earth. The incarnation is a great mystery. It isn't possible for God to become man. It isn't possible for that which is finite and limited to contain the infinite and unlimited. The finite cannot contain the infinite, cries human reason. But human reason is wrong. Nothing is impossible with God. He who will not dwell in human temples dwelt among us as a man. In him, St. Paul writes to the Colossians, dwells the fullness of God bodily. For it pleased the Father, Paul writes, that in him all the fullness of the Godhead should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth 
or in things in heaven, having made peace by the blood of his cross. It is a mystery, but we believe it, adore it, and long to look into it and celebrate it for joy that it means we are saved. Pleased is man with man to dwell, we sing. Jesus, our Emmanuel, which is God with us. For the same reason that the incarnation is likened to a marriage, there is also another marriage that Holy Scripture speaks of, which St. Paul also calls a great mystery. It is the marriage between this same Christ and his holy bride, the church. And it is spelled out in, especially, in an especially beautiful way in Ephesians chapter 5, with these words which continue right after our epistle lesson. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. For we are members of Christ's body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, think about it, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. For this reason, this is what marriage is for. What a mystery indeed. He in whom the divine and human are reconciled and joined as one, that is in Christ, is himself also reconciled to us and joined as one to all who are his by faith. This marriage between Christ and his church depends on the marriage between God and man in Christ. It depends on the incarnation. We celebrate the incarnation at Christmas time and Epiphany. We celebrate the marriage of Christ in his church during Holy Week and Easter. Consider, as Adam was made to sleep deeply so that Eve, the mother of all living, could be taken from his side, so also Christ, the second Adam, the Bible calls him, was made to die so that his bride, his church, by the water and blood that flowed from his pierced side might also be taken. And as Eve was separated from Adam, only to be given right back to him. So we who were separated from God are also by the water of baptism, made powerful by the blood that, that was shed, given back to our Lord Jesus. We are brought back to God. We are his to have and to hold. We who did not seek him have been found. We were ugly and defiled by our native sin and by our many sins. And he cleansed us and made his church into a beautiful helpmeet for himself. We are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. This is a great mystery indeed. We celebrate this mystery by eating and drinking what our Lord prepares for us to celebrate the marriage. He gives us a feast. He gives us his body and blood to eat and to drink. Or do we now demand that the mystery make sense to us? No. We bow before his mercy and praise him for the kindness and tender care he bestows so richly upon us by giving to us living proof of his eternal, lasting incarnation 
and his all-availing atonement. And this too is the wedding feast that Jesus speaks of in the parable. When we eat and drink what our Savior invites us to receive, we are celebrating what God has joined together. God and man in Christ, Christ in his church as well. We celebrate by confessing that Christ's body and the bread are united and his blood and the wine are united. And by eating and drinking his holy supper, we have the forgiveness of our sins, which he purchased for us. The the church is the body of Christ, and we are individual members of it. Just as the mystery of Christ in this church depends on the mystery of God and man and the person of Jesus Christ, so also there is another mystery that we must consider now, which also depends on both. It is not the personal union of God and man which we find in the Incarnation. It is not the holy union of Christ and his church which we find in the public preaching of the gospel and administration of the sacraments, though this mystery depends on both of these mysteries. But it is what our fathers called the mystical union of each believing soul and and Jesus. What St. Paul says to the Colossians is the mystery of Christ in you. We sing about it in our first communion hymn today. Soul adorn thyself with gladness. You're singing to your soul. To be invited to the feast that Jesus speaks of in his parable is to be invited, not just to be a spectator at someone else's marriage. It is to be involved in true communion with Christ. Jesus invites you. Jesus invites each one of you. The church's salvation and Jesus' love for his bride is your salvation and Jesus' love for you, for each one of us individually. Hasten as a bride to meet him and with loving reverence greet him. For with words of life immortal, now he knocketh at thy portal. The whole hymn you are singing to your soul. We commune with each other. That is very important here. We must be reconciled together when we do. To eat and drink the body of Christ at this altar while refusing to speak to one who communes here is a sin. It means that you do not eat and drink worthily, but to your judgment. We celebrate all things that I have already discussed together as one. As one body, one church, with one Lord, one faith, one baptism but we each also commune with Jesus individually. The church cannot believe for you. You yourself are invited. You yourself are invited to learn Christian doctrine, to learn why you should go to this church and not another. You yourself must take part in what Jesus gives to his bride. Jesus who calls us all is Jesus who calls you. He is the mediator between God and man, not just between God and the world or God and the church, but God and you. You who stand guilty and defiled by your own personal sin, you who have been called out of darkness and unbelief, must step into this marvelous light, for the days are dark. You must walk circumspectly. You must redeem the time. You must not be drunk. You must be filled with the Holy Spirit and learn the spiritual songs and hymns and psalms that the whole church is singing 
so that you can encourage one another? Yes, of course. But also so that your own soul might be persuaded to believe it. Just as the church cannot believe for you and Jesus' faithfulness to his bride does nothing for you, unless you also yourself are personally wearing the wedding garment of faith, so we also consider briefly one last mystery. It is, as St. Paul says, concerning the gospel, Israel, the people of Israel are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. For the gifts, of the call, gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. There's a lot of talk these days about how we must support the nation state of Israel and how biblical prophecy tells us to expect God's blessings by our support of this nation state. But we should be careful to note a couple things. It is Jesus, our Savior, that teaches us how his kingdom operates. It operates not by procuring the peace that the world can give. It operates by procuring and distributing to each one of us individually the peace which only Christ can give. We must also remember as well that just as each one of us must be wearing the wedding garment and being and, and participating by personal faith in the promises that are given, so also it is for anyone who is of the people of Israel. There is a mystery involved here. St. Paul writes that all Israel will be saved and that we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They find their salvation where we find ours, in the peace which Christ has won, in the mercy, the mild mercy of God's own Son who came and visited them to be their Savior and who remains ours. For not all Israel is Israel, but those who believe in what Abraham believed, those who trust in his Son, those who find no worthiness in themselves, in their status, whether it be circumcision or just the modern church today, whether it be Israel or the Gentiles, our status is found in the call of the gospel, which we take part of by hearing it, by believing it, by confessing it, and by depending upon it. When we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we are not praying for a different kind of peace than the peace we have known. We are paying, praying for the peace we need and that the whole world needs. In Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ unto eternal life. Amen.